Hi, I'm Patricia Grabarek. And I'm Katina Sawyer, and welcome to the Worker Being Podcast. How are you doing today, Katina? I know you've got an article ready for us. Any sneak peek for us? Yes, I'm doing well, and I'm excited to talk about a brand new article that came out called Changes to the Work Family Interface During the COVID-19 Pandemic, Examining Predictors and Implications Using Latent Transition Analysis, which we will talk about. But um, basically, it's about how work and family has potentially changed during COVID-19. Which I think pretty much everybody can say, state some ways as to how it's yes. changed. Yep, absolutely. So that's interesting. Oh, I love these like super fast articles that are coming out I to know. talk about what's currently happening. That's so cool. I know. And then it makes me think like, I mean, you know, some of the things we'll go through later in talking about the study is like, they're not as rigorous sometimes because they're going through so fast. But it sometimes makes me think like, wow, academia moves so slow. And like, as we've talked about on the show before, like these articles take forever to put together and it takes years to get them through the revision process. By the time they come out, like the data is like several years old usually. And like, we can do it faster. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like this is kind of showing like we can do it faster. Like if we wanted to, I think we could at least speed it up a little bit. So anyway, I'm finding Mm -hmm. that interesting. That is interesting. And I think it's actually a very good point. Cause like I think about when like the whole process and how long it takes and all the revisions and all the blah, blah, blah. Like, I think there's some important things that you learn during that process. Yeah. Right. Um, like there's obviously want to make sure the data has been analyzed properly and that the data is addressing any potential concerns in the study and any gaps and all of that. But I think there's also a bit of t- a too much of an obsession on the writing part of it. Yeah. And the specific structure of the paper itself. Yeah. That actually isn't important. Yeah. Like, I mean, maybe people are going to hate me for saying that, but it's not important because what matters is the results and the data. And like, we can talk about like what we found and like why that matters. And, and like those things are important to discuss, but like it doesn't have, I, I feel like that part doesn't, can be a lot less perfect. And I th- think that these newer papers that I'm seeing tend to be written a little bit more, honestly, a little more accessibly. Yeah. Because they're written faster. Yeah. And so I don't get why that, I feel like that is a hang up that we could probably remove. Yeah. And that would be the process along a, a lot. Yeah. I think that basically by the time you get, like in my experience in the review process, like the time you get through the first two rounds by the time you get to like the third round people are just finding generally it gets into like nitpick land of like that's months and months wasted of like not wasted entirely but like of just like minutia minutia like tiny little things like I think that you know the theory part up front is important but it doesn't once you get that part right the the what if you added a few sentences about that or what if you had a few sentences about that or what about like those things are what sometimes drive me nuts because I'm like okay this is actually our paper like we're writing this paper you're not writing this paper (laughs) so like so like sometimes as a reviewer you do have to like back off and just be like look like if it was my paper this is what I would put in it but like is it necessary that it has that in it like no just because that's what I would put in it like so there's I think there's like 
diminishing returns the longer you go in the process. And Mm -hmm. some, like, I think these papers, like, they could use another round would be my recommendation. Like, just seeing them come out, like, yeah, I think these could use another round of revision before they were, like, of the normal, like, quality where, like, the holes are filled from the perspective. But, like, I don't think that they need another, like, two rounds. Um, Yeah. Which is what normally happens. So I think there's, like, a medium that we could find that, like, these papers are making me feel like... This is so slow. I mean, the other thing is that everyone that does all this stuff, the vo- the reviewers and the associate editors and all the people that make decisions on these papers are volunteers. And so that's another bonkers part of it is like the reason that these papers are getting reviewed faster is because the editorial board has been asked to please review these papers within two weeks instead of within a month. Mm, so interesting. The, re- the review turnaround time is cut in half, but um, mm-hmm. but we couldn't ask people to do two week turnaround all the time but we could (laughs) if people actually got like some sort of we could expect people to do a faster turnaround if it was not a volunteer activity so anyway there's a lot of pro a lot of problems that I see in the world yeah no I totally think you're right like I think that if we set the expectation that Everybody has to review within two weeks and the people that are, you know, getting on these review boards and volunteering for that are going to do it in that pace, right? Like you have to set the expectation. If you are unwilling to set the expectation, well, then that's a whole other issue. Right. But, um, but yeah, I just, I I think it's really interesting that (laughs) we give people so much time, which is, I get that too. Like people are busy and if you want people to volunteer, like sometimes it's necessary, but if you're volunteering already... What's the difference of saying I'm going to volunteer to do this and I'm going to do it the first two weeks, right? Instead of the month, right? I do then like think that's... two weeks later, I can have different time available. Yeah, I do think that's a good point. What they should try to do though is because if I was reviewing the the big problem is that when I put in a manuscript at two weeks, the next day I get a new one, so uh, you're going to end up reviewing double the amount. So they could either lay off. Um, like people get more people on the board or like I think if if people got some sort of compensation like if anyone in any of this process got paid for it that would be magical um because we just don't get paid and (laughs) the whole journal runs on authors and reviewers and associate editors that do all this work and never get paid yeah so that's just like a crazy bonkers thing but anyway we've gotten very sidetracked on that but the fact (laughs) is that these shorter articles are showing that there's a a promise of doing things a little bit differently than what the like traditional model has been and like what can we learn from this rapid review process that might be able to be replicated in some ways to help get scientific research out faster which i think would be a very good goal i mean i feel like COVID has been doing that around the board right like we're talking about getting trying to get a vaccine as fast as possible yeah doing research on the disease like so much faster than normal um and then the workplace is changing right we obviously people are working remote more and we're gonna be talking about the work family piece like there's a lot that has changed and i think i mean i'm hoping and maybe i'm totally wrong but i'm hoping that some of this is going to lead to better things that we like we're forced to revisit our our typical structures and mm-hmm. are now going to maybe make some positive changes to try to address it. I don't know. I don't know if it's going to stick. One thing that, yeah. you know, we noticed when COVID first hit, like the everyone was home and 
it was so much clearer. The air quality was so good. And yeah. then as it continued, and even though we're still mostly at home, like, there's some things opened up, but, like, mostly people are at home. People start driving places more. People are just, like, out of their house more, even if they're not, yeah. like, with other people in the same way. And that's kind of gone away, and people have kind of lost the motivation to keep that up. And I feel like there's yeah. ways... I, I, I hoped that people would take hold on to that and be like, wow, look at this air quality. What can we do differently in the future? Right. And I yeah. don't know if that really happened, but I think it's going to stick in some places. Like, I think the remote work thing is yeah. going to have to stick. Like, people, companies are going to have to be more flexible because everyone's done it now and they've proved that they can do it. So yeah, what right. argument are they going to have, right? Totally. Yeah. It's, it is really, really, really interesting because... I think that so many companies now are going through the like we want people to be back in the office and the employees are like you know some people want to go back in the office but people that don't want to go back in the office are like well why can't I just why can't I just stay here <laughs> like I, yeah it's been fine you know like um so I think people will have to contend more with like preferences um and even companies that were like one or two day a week remote before and now, like, realize that there was no real need to, like, be balancing it that way mm -hmm. um, are also recognizing, like, they already knew that people could do their jobs from home, but they were, like, clinging to an idea that, like, it had to be done in person. And um, I think that there'll be a lot of those companies that transition to, like, more, if, if not totally, but more remote work schedules. Yeah, I agree. I think it'll be interesting for sure. And yeah. I don't know. I have, like, like my personal, I think I've said this probably on the podcast before, but, like, I think the ideal vision, this is my ideal vision, are you ready? Yeah, Is ready. <laughs> that <laughs> businesses can have, like, I really think the co-working space model makes yeah. the most sense. Like, I am, let's pretend I'm Facebook, right? And I have offices all over the world. I can have remote employees that don't live near an office because that's the talented person that I want for my company, that they're the good one and that's the person I want. And they can live somewhere, you know, 300 miles away from an office, not a big deal. But those people that are near the office can have the option to go in to an office. Right. And so Facebook probably won't have like this massive campus with like 8,000 bajillion perks. They would probably, they could scale down, you know, save money from maintaining an office of that size but still have some space and whether that's like rented through a we work kind of thing or their own smaller office where people have more like pods that they can just pop into whenever they get there um those kinds of things i think are going to be i think are more realistic and yeah you know i know some people like to go in especially like places like facebook and google where they have all of your meals and everything like that so some of those things might exist but they may not exist at the same scale um and i think that's not a bad thing i think the one concern that's something that someone just brought up to me the other day and i was like huh i feel extremely privileged and stupid for not having thought about this it does reduce the workforce in terms of like janitorial staff right and those kinds of maintenance types of roles so that is a bit of a concern but if you have something yeah. smaller you could potentially still have those types of roles yeah and also like i mean if people are still owning the real estate, but it's instead of a company owning a building, it's uh, instead of like, well, it's still a company owning a business, owning a building, but like <laughs> un instead of your company owning a building, but the company that owns the co-working space owns the building, 
then the yeah. co-working space still needs people to do all kinds of jobs, right? So maybe it yeah. just transitions to like who the big employers become. Yeah, um, and and maybe a perk would be, you know, yeah, we don't have janitorial staff because at the same scale because we don't have you know a five hundred thousand square foot <laughs> space. Right. Right. Um, but we now can offer a perk of like at home cleaning services so someone can right. clean your office right. yeah. and then, so that role changes but it's still something i think one i think employees would love that perk yeah um and then it would still it would still reduce costs from the workplace in terms of right. the like you know the company not having to pay for their own office full time but they would still so 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 still saving money but being able to provide a little bit of that perk so maybe that yeah. janitorial staff cost doesn't decline too much but it's i right. think a, a nice balance there anyways something i've been yeah. thinking about i wish i could make that decision for some of these big companies but <laughs> yeah no i think i think it's i think it's really interesting and honestly i think it's a long time coming that like this bigger disruption in where people do work it like you know we've been able capable to do work remotely for a long time, but nobody was forced to do work remotely. And right. so it's interesting like that, you know, these terrible circumstances, but pushed people into that. Like it's like an experiment and then you realize the experiment didn't go as poorly as you thought. And it depends on what type of job and yeah. et cetera. But like, you know, I know a lot of like old school HR departments that just on principle were like, no, you know, like, Nobody mm -hmm. that I knew ever worked from home. And, like, I think you need to, like, do business on a handshake and, like, stuff like that. And then now it's, like, that's, you know, and a lot of the newer employees were, like, hey, I want to be in a place where I can work more flexibly. And they're just, like, nope. And then now they have no choice. So, and I think they're learning that it's not as bad as they thought. So. Yeah. Anyway. Well, on that note, let's yes. talk about the article. I mean, I feel like it's related to this conversation <laughs> it is um so as i mentioned before um this article is called changes to the work family interface during the covid19 pandemic um examining predictors and implications using latent transition analysis and it's by vaziri casper wayne and matthews and it was just published in the journal of applied psychology like a week ago or something so it's brand new Ooh. um and basically what they did so they took a look at a data set that came from before COVID, um, which uh, looked at identity profiles of how people um, experience conflict and enrichment. So they looked at profiles of people that um, basically do you experience high conflict, high enrichment, low conflict, high enrichment. So they tried to look at how do people experience these two things together? How do people cluster in terms of what their experiences are? Um, and then in another data set, they tried to take a look at how those clusters changed as a result of going through COVID. Mm -hmm. um, and they also look at what changing those from one cluster to another does for well-being related outcomes. Okay, so let's talk about a little bit about the clusters. So, like, yes. can we define conflict and enrichment and what yes. these clusters each look like? Yes, we can. Um, <laughs> so, conflict is when your work and your family disrupt 
each other. So your family can disrupt your work or your work can disrupt your family. But basically the idea is that they're clashing, right? So Mm -hmm. a conflict is any kind of clash between your work and your family. And enrichment is when your work makes your family life better or your family life makes your work life better. So that's when these two things are really synergized and they improve one another. So let's take up some examples. So, I mean, we know we've talked about both these concepts before, but just in case, I think like, so conflict is I am working and my kid runs screaming through the office door and interrupts my meetings, or I have to like suddenly stop my work and go, you know, pick up a sick kid from school. Um, and that creates stress for me. Like it could exactly. be like these types of things that are creating stress for me around my work. Or on the opposite side in the family, like maybe I have to work a late day or I have a late meeting and I can't have dinner with the family and I'm upset about that and the family's upset about that, etc. Right. So those are conflicts. Yep. Exactly. Enrich- so let's think about enrichment examples. I always like, I feel like the conflict ones are easier to, to give examples of, but like enrichment could be like... I've learned some new skill at work or in my family that applies to the other realm, right? So, like, maybe I've learned I went through, like, a conflict management training at work and then I come into my family life and now I'm able to, I'm able to manage some of the conflict I have with my spouse a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Um, or it could be, like, you know, I got a promotion and now I have a little extra money, which means I can, I don't know, send my kid to the ballet class they wanted to go to. Yes. Exactly. So things like my involvement in my family puts me in a good mood and that helps me to be a better worker or vice versa. Um, Or, yeah, I learned a new skill being a family member that I applied to my work. So maybe I learned relationship management skills uh, at outside of work and then I apply that inside of work. Or maybe I learned leadership skills inside work and I can apply that in my family life, for example. So, um, yeah, there are a few different ways that work and family can enrich. Um, but, uh, yeah, they, they measured uh, both forms, work and family enrichment and family and work enrichment and work to family conflict and family to work conflict. Perfect. Okay. And so then when you're talking about the clusters, these yes. are just different combinations of how much conflict you have and how much enrichment you have. Yes. So basically what they do, um, just so everybody listening understands the idea of these clusters is that you take you ask people to fill out how much conflict and how much enrichment they have and then you look at how those scores vary together overall within the population of people that you're looking at so are people that have very low conflict maybe there's one profile where people have low conflict and at the same time have high enrichment let's say Um, maybe there's a profile where people have both high uh, conflict and high enrichment maybe some people are low in both so you try to look at how do these things hang together and then how much of the population fits within each profile so Mm -hmm. you basically want to have you don't want to call something a profile of conflict and enrichment if only you know half a percentage of people falls in that profile it's probably by chance but when you have larger chunks of people that belong to these groups Um, you label them something because they're commonly occurring patterns that exist in the population that you're studying. So for the stats nerds out there, whether they use like latent class analysis or latent trait 
Yeah. Yes. So, um, for those of you that are into stats, kind of know what the analysis is all about. But I think a good way to describe this, and because I've always struggled describing, well, I've had some struggles describing this type of analysis. And so I'm going to put my stab out there, and you're going to sort of hate it, but hopefully like it too. Um, <laughs> so everyone knows Myers-Briggs. And I hate Myers-Briggs. We hate Myers-Briggs. Yes. We're just going to we throw it out it. there. And hate there's it. <laughs> not a lot of good science behind it. So we're just going to put that out there. Sorry to everybody that likes it or has fun with the, like, pop, like, culture articles about it. Have fun with that, but it's not sound, scientifically. But the idea of that is similar to this type of analysis. So basically, when you're doing this type of analysis, what you're doing is you're creating typology. So different types of people or different types of groups of people with similar things occurring either similar behaviors similar similar stressors some similar personality types you can use this analysis in all sorts of things just about people and create these types so when you think of it if you don't know the stats behind it conceptually there is a similarity to having like a you know being in i don't even know infj or whatever um because what it is is it's explaining a type of person based on the data that we're using so conceptually there are some similarities but statistically it's way more sound (laughs) yes correct and that's because these um these clusters were replicated across multiple samples and also they're predictive of stuff and um and then we would have to test and retest the same people that were in the sample again later to see if uh they hold up which they did in this study. So that's another good um, example of a way of telling if those clusters are actually profiles that exist. And then if people can change so easily, in this instance, we would expect people might change from one profile to another when something major happens because it's about what you're experiencing. But for Myers-Briggs, it's a personality type, so it's not supposed to change over time. So the problem with Myers-Briggs is that it changes over time. Here, we see change over time, but that's okay because people's experiences can change, but their personality should be more stable. Yeah. And not to get too philosophical on the personality side, like, you know, 20 years down the road, you're probably going to be somewhat different than you were today. But the thing with something like Myers-Briggs is if you don't know what you're being tested on, so if you didn't realize you're doing the Myers-Briggs again, two days from now, you'd be different, (laughs) not in 10 years. And that doesn't make sense from a psychological perspective. So anyways... There it you go. That's your that's Myers Briggs stinks, but <laughs> the way of clustering things together is a legit method. They're just not using it in appropriate fashion. But that's what they did here. Um, and so, in their sample of uh, employed folks that they um, got through uh, Mechanical Turk, um, they had uh, 379 people. They found that um, three profiles emerged. And 59% were in a profile that um, had low conflict and high enrichment. So that's good. They're calling that profile beneficial. So (laughs) they have low conflict, high enrichment. This is where Myers-Briggs wins, by the way. Naming things that people like. Beneficial? What the hell is that? (laughs) I don't know why. I don't know. I feel like it should have been called, like, something that has to do with, like, good work family about like beneficials just like too 
bland. Yeah. We just, anyway. As researchers, I think a lot of people just don't do a good job of naming it. But no, I no. think the description, low conflict, high enrichment. So this is like a very positive yes. relationship between work and yes, family. Yes, exactly. Um, 22% of the population fell into a category they're calling active, which you're also not going to like that title. Um, <laughs> that's a moderate level of conflict and a moderate level of enrichment. So you have some good things about your about your work and life that are synergizing and some things that are clashing. So that's called active. And then the third profile, 19% of the sample was in, and that's called passive, which is I have low conflict and low enrichment. So like basically like nothing's happening. Nothing's good, but nothing's bad. It's just like nothing is going on. Interesting. That is, I mean, those groups are really interesting. I do hate the names. Um, But so you've got one where... There's a lot of positive things happening. You have one where it's both positive and negative, And then you have one where it's just blah, nothing's happening. Right, <laughs> right. And they're kind of arguing that because the passive and the active profiles have a mix of things that would be desirable and undesirable. So like you have, you know, moderate enrichment in the active profile, but you also have moderate conflict. And in the third profile, you have low conflict, but you also don't have anything good going on. You have low enrichment. So they basically are arguing that the best, the only one that's like really good is the beneficial um, profile is their like hypothesis. So not to take this off course, but I don't know if I would agree with that hypothesis. And I'm curious to see what they find, because I feel like the, the third group, the neutral group, like just because you're not enriching your work with your family life or your family with your work stuff doesn't mean that it's, not a positive situation yeah yeah I think that um I think they're like thinking about them relative to each other maybe Mm. um but I don't know I agree with you and people might honestly that are in that profile might just not really like think much about work and family like Mm -hmm. yeah I don't perceive any problems but I don't really perceive anything like it's just it's just happening it's not something that really registers so it could almost be like a personal like apathy or something yeah Um, so yeah, so the next thing that they did was they wanted to know, um, do employees transition between profiles due to a crisis like COVID-19? So when your work and family situation changes abruptly, can you go from one profile to another and how do people move across profiles? So that was the next set of things that they were interested in. Um, do people transition between profiles and what they find is that people do transition between profiles and so um, ultimately in their uh, findings there were specific moves that were more likely than others Mm -hmm. Um, and so basically what they find is that these events that are disruptive create different ways that people relate to their work and family and transitions from some profiles were more likely than from others. Um, so the people that were um, in passive um, profiles or active profiles were more likely to transition into a different profile than people in beneficial profiles. So people with um, very little conflict or enrichment were more likely to face greater conflict um, transitioning into the active profile and greater enrichment as well um so interestingly when you care when you were like no i don't really have much going on 
with COVID, you were more likely to transition into the like, yeah, now I'm experiencing some conflict. Now I'm experiencing um, some, some uh, basically enrichment as well. Like there's some positive and some, some negative that are coming along with it, but I'm experiencing more activity on -hmm. that front, basically. Um, People in the beneficial profile, however, were much more likely to sustain that profile across time. So that was a very stable profile. Hmm. So people were um, not likely to lose the benefits that they had before in COVID. So if you start off in a beneficial situation, even in a very disruptive scenario, you're likely to end up in the same beneficial situation regardless. Um, and they have a couple thoughts about why that might be true. So what happens to the active group though? Oh, yes. Sorry. Yes. I'm getting into the um, beneficial piece. Um, so employees were, so I'll step back a little bit and say that most people stayed in their profile. The mm-hmm. biggest probability of transition was from passive to active. Okay. And then some people transitioned from active to passive. Huh. And some people transitioned from, um, from uh, beneficial to passive. But the biggest transition was from passive to active. Got so it. So basically okay. that makes some sense. Mm-hmm. Um, that even though it's a small percentage of people that actually switched, it does make a difference in terms of the patterns. So the biggest takeaways here are that the or the biggest shifts were people saying, I'm not experiencing anything, and then going from now I'm experiencing some stuff. And I think the most interesting piece is that the um, beneficial folks stayed the same. So they were very unlikely to switch gears. So I have a quick question. Did yeah. they look at anything like, the population like who transitioned to remote work so everybody here did everybody okay yes that's interesting because i was wondering a little bit like if the passive group you know if they were transitioning more likely to transition to remote work did they then see more conflict but also more enrichment because they're with their family more but right if everyone did then that doesn't explain it that's interesting okay yeah yeah, so um, so this is, like, very um, – what they're basically saying here is that um, the – if you go into a bad situation with very positive things um, from a work-family perspective, you have enough resources and, like, generativeness from that to sort of, like, bear the storm, right? That um, – starting in a really like work family rich place allows you to maintain that even when there's a disruption. So they're basically arguing in this paper that people should try to create as beneficial circumstances as possible before something like this happens, which makes a lot of sense. Right. So like it's, if you want to, if there's going to be a second wave of COVID, let's say, and you haven't done anything to create better work family conditions you should probably do that right um and so they're they're making some suggestions in this paper based off um 
of the data that they collected because they also looked at what were things that um, made people uh, more likely uh, to make a negative transition. So people who went from either a beneficial category into a more negative category or anybody who um, experienced like a gain in conflict or a decrease in enrichment. And when they looked at those individuals, there were a few things that were particularly uh, crucial to making people transition negatively. So that those things that they found were feeling overloaded with technology, oh. feeling like technology was invading your life, like you had too much, um, not just like an overload, but like this is cutting into my time that I could be spending doing other things. Um, so when people were less comfortable with the technology overall, so either being forced to use technology to do more work than they used to do or being in touch like after work hours because they have technology that makes them constantly available. When people felt those two things, they were more likely as a result of COVID to make a negative transition to, to a more negative profile. That's so interesting that technology was such a big driver. Yes. Yeah. Technology was a big driver um, in this piece. And another thing was, and I don't want to get too far because there's like a couple things that they look at here, but there were a few other things that predicted whether someone made a negative transition. If you if you cope with problems using your emotions instead of using problem solving techniques, you were also more likely to make a negative transition. So there's yeah, this concept called sense. emotion focused coping and problem focused coping. So if your first inclination when you encounter a problem is to say, let me break this problem down and try to solve it. You did better in this situation in terms of transitioning to a more negative profile than if you were in a situation where you focused on the feelings that you were having and trying to like, um, like work through the problem from an emotion standpoint instead of from a problem solving standpoint. So that also predicted more negative transitions. I think that makes a um, lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. The last couple of things that made a difference, because um, there were a few things, had to do with um, leaders. So if you had a compassionate leader, you were more likely to make a positive transition from being in a passive profile to a beneficial profile. So um, from nothing's really happening to, oh, like I'm actually experiencing low conflict, high enrichment. That had to do with leader compassion. Um, and employees whose leaders exhibited fewer uh, family supportive behaviors, which we've talked about before, like your supervisor showing you that family support is important. For employees who had leaders who, ex who exhibited less family supportive behaviors, they were more likely to transfer from an active to a passive profile, but it didn't have an impact on whether you ended up in a beneficial profile. So the family supportive supervisor behaviors were less important in this story because the active and passive profiles had less of an impact on your well-being, which is the last thing I'll talk about. Um, but uh, they think that that might be because uh, people who exhibited uh, these behaviors after COVID might have also done so before COVID because they looked at pe how people moved pre and post. 
So they're thinking that maybe it just didn't make a difference because there might be just a high correlation between those two things, but they don't really know. That was kind of like a funky finding. Interesting. Okay, so let's break down a little bit of what you said because I think all this is really important. Yeah. So we're saying that, I mean, a compassionate leader is really interesting. So if your leader is compassionate, then you are more likely to see less well, you're going from passive to beneficial. So you're already not seeing conflict. So the conflict hasn't increased. Right. But now you're seeing enrichment, whether that's work, family, or family to work, right? So something in your work and family balance is enriching. Mm-hmm. And but you're, and your leader's compassion. So I'm like trying to figure out like what that means. And I mean, I think the simple takeaway is leaders be compassionate <laughs> during this right. time. And I think that, I think it does make some sense because I think, it can be really stressful to be home with everybody at the same time. And I know we've talked about it before. I know everybody's been talking about that. So if you have a compassionate person that you're working for, you would assume that person would be more flexible with you in some ways, right? Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if there's like, or even just like listening to the stress yep. about it. Or you're in a call with them and the child is screaming and they're not like, getting frustrated that you have to pause to deal with it. Like, I think those types of things can make a big difference and make it feel like your family isn't a problem. And actually maybe you're having more conversations with your leader about your family. And so you can feel like there's like some positive relationship building happening too. Yeah, definitely. I think, I think that, um, yeah, a key takeaway that they sort of housed in all of this is that leadership is really important, even with the technology piece Um, They mentioned that, you know, if you're asking people to use technologies they're not well trained on or you haven't assessed people's comfort level with them or you're um, asking people to because that can also add to the amount of time that it takes for people to be using these technologies and they might feel like it's cutting into their lives more um, or even just like time they spend worrying about it or setting it up or whatever. Um, And also, if you can model a good technology hygiene in the sense that you're not asking employees to answer emails in the middle of the night or extremely early in the morning or you're not asking people to always be on like video zoom call at 10 o'clock at night you know what I mean like whatever the case may be that you're being respectful in the way that you're using technology and a lot of times that comes from role modeling in the leader yeah that's actually a really good point because a lot of people I mean you and I have both had virtual meetings like all the time before COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, Granted, I think the video being on piece has increased a lot. Yeah. um, Which is interesting. But I think that a good compassionate leader would be one that would understand that you're not always going to have your camera on. And it's Mm -hmm. not always reasonable. And maybe there's a million things that could be happening in the background that it doesn't make sense for you to have your camera on. if you haven't been using Zoom, like being understanding that people don't always under know what they're doing. Like, I feel like we have, I mean, like I said, we've always done virtual stuff, but we went during this time, we were already going through a transition between WebEx and Microsoft Teams. And mm-hmm. it was like starting before COVID, but really COVID hit. And then all of a sudden we're now in Microsoft Teams and nobody knows how to use Microsoft Teams yet. Right. And so I feel like... Um, having patience with people like there's a lot of yeah you know, little things that can come with that that you just need to just not I don't know not be reactive as a leader and I think that can help people feel less stressed out about these new technologies 
And then to your yeah. point, like, if you're constantly texting people at, like, 8 p.m. because you just remembered some random thing that you wanted to talk about versus, like, sending an email in the morning, people might get stressed out. So, yeah, leadership does seem to be really important. That's interesting. That's a good call out for them. Yeah, yeah. And so um, remembering that, you know, the individuals that were in the passive category were most likely to transfer to active the people who are in the active category were most likely to transfer to passive and the people in the beneficial category are most likely to transfer to passive although they were the least likely to move in general thinking about what does this uh transition predict what they basically found if we're thinking about like what's the larger so what of like why should we be doing this um, when you transition from either active or passive to beneficial, your job satisfaction went up, your commitment went up, and your turnover intentions went down. When you transferred from beneficial to active, so you got worse, that was associated with lower job satisfaction and lower perceived performance and more turnover intentions. Um, so while beneficial to passive didn't have the same outcome, and there was no findings at all for going between active and passive so it didn't mm. impact your outcomes if you were were active and you became passive or if you were passive and you became active um but if you moved into beneficial from being in a less positive category your outcomes improved and if you move from beneficial into active then your outcomes got worse okay that make i mean that makes sense right all yeah. of a sudden your conflict is going up so things are going to look worse for you or alternatively your conflict either goes down or stays low, but then you're more enriched and you feel more satisfied in the relationship between your work and your family. Obviously that's going to be a positive thing. So it makes a lot of sense. Yep. And that's a good, I mean, I'm glad they had that connection, right? Because now we're talking about things that leaders can do to help people be in the quote right category if possible. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, but why does it matter? Well, I mean, turnover is important. We don't want people to be leaving during this time. Um, we probably don't want people to be unsatisfied ever. <laughs> so yeah. like really important to make sure people are happy and satisfied in their jobs and committed to their jobs so that, I mean, so that this remote kind of transition can also be beneficial for everybody involved, not just the employee, if we're keeping the employees happy and motivated. Yeah, definitely. So I think the takeaway from a leadership perspective or the couple takeaways is, you know, if, it, hopefully not, but if we go into a second wave of this or there's some other disruption or just people are trying to adjust to new work-life norms, um, maybe, you know, in the future, there will be other ways that we change the way we're working. We were just talking about co-working spaces and all these different things that might introduce um, new ways of working or new normals. Um, be compassionate. Um, you know, show people that you care about their work and their life and treat them in a humane way. Um not saying not to do family supportive supervisor behaviors. You should do those behaviors and show support for family. It doesn't, it doesn't hurt. Um, but uh, it's basically, it didn't show as much of an impact here, but they do note that that's odd. So I wouldn't say don't do it. I would say more research is needed. Um, help people uh, curb tech intrusions and role model good technology usage that is respectful of people's time. Um, and then from a personal perspective if you know that people are more likely to cope using emotions than problems you can role model problem focused coping for people um but if you know that you have more emotional people on the team that might be 
those might be people to check in with more frequently. Um, the last thing that we didn't talk about was that if you don't like mixing your work and life together, you didn't like this period of time. So <laughs> people who people who like to segment were more likely to fall into a worse category. So if you know that about people as well, um, if you know that somebody really likes to like, okay, you know, everything's off at five previously in the office, that might be another uh, group of people to check in with as well. And that you'll basically get the benefits of better job attitudes um, and lower turnover if you can manage this well. So it makes a lot of sense to uh, keep on top of it. And if you're already a good leader in this area or you feel like you're already a good leader in this area, then good for you. Um, your team is going to do better than other teams moving forward because people will likely continue to reap the benefits of the good leadership you're already showing in whatever might come next. Yeah, and I think from like a, an organizational perspective, it might be good for companies to, you know, pass the message along, <laughs> allow um, their leaders to be more supportive of family, encourage your leaders to not email in the middle of the night or um, help give coaching or training to people on how to use the new technologies for collaboration. Organizations, I think, can do a lot to try to like push things in the right direction too. And mm -hmm. then as an employee, like, I think it's also helpful if your leader isn't doing some of these things, like you can try modeling those behaviors for your other team members at least, right? So yep. if somebody's having a hard time getting into teams and they're just struggling with teams a lot, give them that compassion, that space, you know, so they don't feel stressed out by the technology yeah. piece. Um, so you can try to, to do some of the positive things to help make a team culture that's more positive even if your leader is not not there with you yep absolutely I completely agree with that and think that everybody can do their part to make the workplace more family friendly and to help people get through times like this in a way that is more healthy and happy yes well thank you for sharing this article it was really interesting I love talking about the new stuff that's very relevant very current to today so that's exciting yeah I, I'm happy to talk about it too. I was happy to see the article come out and um, hopefully this helps people thinking about how they can either cope with the aftermath of what has already happened or uh, plan for the future. Hopefully we won't have to, but you never know. We didn't plan for this either. <laughs> exactly. And honestly, everything that we've talked about is relevant outside of COVID. Like we see that this specific instance can create a change and shift people around, but no matter what, you want to create an environment that is supportive of families and work, right? You yeah. want your employees to, I mean, you're here listening to Workplace Wellness podcast. Clearly you care <laughs> about workplace wellness and work and family and trying to figure out a balance between your work and your personal life that functions well for you as a person is important regardless. So, you know, there's a lot that when there's big events, big transitions, you do see those shifts. So obviously it's time to pay special attention, but you shouldn't stop paying attention when things go back to quote normal. Right. Exactly. Yep. Making a beneficial work environment carries over regardless of the circumstance, apparently based on this work. So yeah, keep it up. Exactly. Awesome. Well, we'd love to hear from all of our listeners. If you have any questions, thoughts, feedback, please email us at contact at workerbeing.com. You can find us on our website, workerbeing.com, and you can find us on social at workerbeing on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Almost forgot about Twitter, but we're there all the time. <laughs> Have a good one. Bye. 
Worker Being Podcast is hosted by us, Patricia Grabarek and Katina Sawyer, and produced by Allie Johnson. Thank you.